So these are the questions that our patients ask. They come to us and say, so does HIV make you age faster? What is this inflammation that I'm hearing all about? How does the inflammation make you age? Can we measure inflammation? And if you stop inflammation, do you stop aging? So I think these are all questions that we've all heard. And, and you know, it's really kind of difficult sometimes trying to address these questions with our patients, particularly when we don't have the answers ourselves. So where do things sit right now with aging with HIV, definitely people living longer with HIV, and so we've seen this increased life expectancy with the antiretrovirals, but still the life expectancy is shorter than what we're seeing for the general population. And this is especially true for those that have low CD4 counts when they first access care or those that are on salvage regimens. But what is this impact on increased life expectancy on comorbidity prevalence? And I don't think we really know that yet. We know that our patients are living longer that we're starting to see more comorbidities, but we really don't know what that percent's going to be, how that differs from the general population, or the types of comorbidities. We're just at that age now that, right, people are aging up and we're starting to have more and more patients between the ages of 50 and, and late 70s, but the biggest wave is yet to come. And so I think it's going to be another 10 years before we really know what all this impact really is. Certainly, though, this impact on increased comorbidity has affected our recommendations for timing of ARVs, right? If you think about the IASUSA guidelines, DHHS, and New York State, all now really considering that you should be on therapy if your T-cell count is 500 or less. And still not quite clear people that have CD4 counts greater than 500, but certainly more suggestions and strong consideration to be starting people who have other comorbidities regardless of what their T-cell count is. And the other issue that we still don't know about is what is the appropriateness of primary care practice guidelines? We don't really know whether or not the, the guidelines for the general population really do apply to individuals with HIV or should they be modified somewhat. And we talked about this last year. We talked about should colorectal screening, for instance, really start at age 40 rather than 50 based on small reports that there appears to be more cancers or at least larger lesions at a younger age. So there was lots of enthusiasm when we saw this before that the life expectancy of someone who has HIV pretty much is, is near what the general population was. And this is from the Athena cohort in the Netherlands. And this was based on somebody who's, you know, started diagnosed with HIV at the age of 25. Um, in the general population, somebody age 25 could expect to live 53.1 years. And that same individual, if they had HIV and got into care, that's the key, right, getting access to care, getting started on ARVs, would expect to live another 52.7 years. And so this was, this was great news, saying that we've now approximated what the age is. But again, remember that this is modeling for somebody that's asymptomatic starting at the age of 25. And the modeling for those that presented at older age in women was, was slightly less. And I think it's important when we meet with our patients that, that we think about what that starting CD4 count is. 
And this was data from the HOPS cohort that was um, presented two years ago to almost now, looking at the time of starting uh, antiretroviral therapy. So certainly for those individuals who have T-cell counts, you know, less than 50, their chance of getting T-cell counts above 500 is pretty slim, especially if you're older, right? So the younger patients, adolescents, they seem to spring up pretty well, but older patients, you don't get there. And so when you're talking to your patient about what is his or her life expectancy, these are the factors that you have to keep in mind, one of them being what is, what is the stage of disease as they enter care. So antiretroviral therapy and HIV are associated with a lot of chronic adverse effects. And so this whole question of cardiac disease, is it related to the ARVs? Is it related to HIV itself? Is it traditional risk factors? Regardless, what we do know is our patients with HIV on antiretroviral therapy have increased risk of coronary heart disease, and we see more metabolic abnormalities. And there's no reason to expect that antiretroviral therapy is going to protect people from developing the appropriate age, you know, uh, associated malignancies. Lung cancer, in fact, is more prevalent in people with HIV. We even adjusted for smoking, and we don't really understand that interplay between the virus and malignancy. And we're seeing certain conditions now in earlier age, osteoporosis, hypogonadism, and certainly this, this plays a big role in, in fractures and in, in, uh, functional capacity. This was a study that was published in 2008. And these were the results of three randomized controlled trials. This was uh, the INSIGHT study and two of the interleukin-2 studies, and they looked at the 495 deaths or so that they had. And what was interesting is that only 10% of the deaths that occurred in this, in this cohort of, of subjects was related to an AIDS-defining illness. And you can see 21% was from an AIDS, non-AIDS-defining malignancy. Now, you can get into a little bit of semantics here because some of those malignancies were, in fact, uh, related to hepatitis and, and with the interplay of HIV and hepatitis that maybe, you know, he, uh, you know, cancers related to hepatitis and hepatitis C and B really are in fact HIV related. But nevertheless, this is the categories that were, were looked at here. And, and then, you know, you have just kind of a smattering of all different things here with suicides and accidents and everything else that you would see in the general population. But the point being that our patients are not dying from HIV-related conditions. They're dying from other traditional uh, diseases. So I, I have to remember to credit uh, Cornell here because Tripp reminded me that Charleston is, is a professor at Cornell. So the Charleston Comorbidity Index score was developed to classify comorbid conditions that alter the risk for one-year mortality after hospitalization in longitudinal studies. If you just Google Charleston Comorbidity Index, the first thing that you get is actually from Institute in Texas, and it's an online calculator, just like doing your cholesterol. And you can plug in and get your Charleston Comorbidity Index there. But it's a point scale that's based on the severity of disease. So, for instance, an MI is equal to one point, whereas if you're diabetes and you have end-organ disease, that's two points. Lymphoma is two points, whereas if you have a metastatic solid tumor, it's six points. 
So this was a study that we just came out this year looking at survival and, and looking at the, the Charleston comorbidity index among patients with HIV and not with HIV. And what you see here is, it's probably better if I uh, get up here and use the pointer here. It's a little bit hard to see here. But these, are, these were calculated pre-HIV diagnosis. So looking at people that had HIV infection, but what comorbidities did they have at the time that they got diagnosed? Now remember, sometimes it's years before people are diagnosed, so trying to sort out whether or not it's HIV-related is difficult. But the point here is that these individuals had these comorbidities, and for each group, the more the higher the index, you can see that their lines are going down right there. They have less survival. But what's interesting here is comparing it then to age and gender match controls that have HIV, that are HIV uninfected and have the same Charleston comorbidity scales. What you see here is that there is significant differences among those that have HIV compared to those without HIV, suggesting that HIV itself may in fact worsen conditions that may have been pre-existing, you know, before they got diagnosed with their HIV. So HIV, therefore, making your comorbidities worse and, and actually not having the same life expectancy as those that um, do not have HIV. So here's three studies. And so the question is, if you have an MI at an early age, is that because your condition, your HIV infection is making you age. So one was a retrospective case control study of 8,742 patients that were compared to 47, I mean 43,700 controlled subjects aged 18 to 44, and the odds ratio for the cases was 2.3. In another prospective cohort of 498 women with 2208 controls over 6.7 years, again, stratified by age, you see the relative risk, again, of the, of the cases is 52.4. And then in yet another retrospective study looking at two prospective cohorts that did modeling of Framingham, the observed rate of MI was significantly increased over that that predicted by the model. So the risk of non-fatal MI and death due to coronary artery disease was increased. So I don't think the question's here, but how many people feel data like this really supports that having like HIV infection increases your, your risk and is associated, gives you early aging? So you think this data supports that we, you age sooner if you have HIV? Yes? And how many say no? Okay, what if I told you all these studies were in women with lupus? Would you have the same impression that there's an association of that you, oh, there it was, okay, that you, that you age sooner? So nobody for, typically says in women that have connective tissue disease that people are prematurely aging People, you typically say, well, you have a chronic inflammatory disease that places them at risk of comorbidities. So I'm just playing a little bit with, with this whole aging thing because our patients are really focused now that I have HIV, I'm aging faster. And the question, are they really aging faster or are they developing these comorbidities 
because they have a chronic inflammatory disease. What's interesting in the, in the studies like this with lupus, that by treating lupus, you decrease that rate of MI, you decrease your overall mortality from CHD, and you see improvement in biomarkers and all-cause mortality. We're not at the same state with HIV. We don't have large studies showing the same thing, that treatment has really improved these rates or that we have biomarkers that we can follow and et cetera. But that's where we're headed. But what do you think about when you think about aging? When you think about yourself aging, you think about your hair thinning and getting gray, the texture of our skin changing, a loss of vision, loss of hearing, weakness, arthritis, dementia, diabetes, and hypertension. So, and weight loss is it? Oh, memory loss, yeah, I'm having that too. So hearing impairment. So let's, hearing loss occurs at an earlier age in persons with HIV infection. Hearing loss is more common in persons with HIV infection. There are limited data demonstrating difference in hearing among persons with and without HIV, or one in four. So how many go for number one, that hearing loss occurs at an earlier age? How about that hearing loss is more common in persons with HIV? Okay, how about number three, there's limited data. And then how many for both earlier age and more common? All right, so most people said there's limited data. So there is limited data, and the data that we have so far is a study that was done with the MAX and the WISE cohort. We had 334 men, 46% were HIV infected. 178 women, where 77% were HIV infected. And they conducted distortion product autoacoustic emissions um, in each year. And essentially what this is is you put a probe in the ear and you set off two different frequencies and then you're measuring that pattern. So it's not the old test that you raise your hand that you're hearing something. Um, and what their conclusion was that the risk factors for hearing loss, there was uh, increased for, uh, risk of hearing loss for every 10-year increase in age being male and non-black. Um, it's probably those people that attended that No Nukes concert, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, HIV infection was not a risk factor in this. In fact, Nader CD4, HIV viral load, none of the HIV-associated parameters were predictive. And in fact, there was more hearing loss in the HIV seronegative groups. So while I think this is interesting, I think it's far from conclusive on anything, so that's why I would say, again, that there's limited data. But from this study, we don't appear, at least, that we're affecting sensory organs, um, and similar findings have been with uh, eyesight. So it's not exactly the same thing as aging, but so what's going on? So what is inflammation? And, and we can get pretty crazy here with inflammation, and this is a talk all by itself here looking at its interplay here with adaptive immunity, innate immunity, and the coagulation pathways, et cetera. But, you know, we all love Wikipedia, so I thought I'd pull it up and see what my patients are reading here and, and you know, to set on fire. Um, it's part of a complex biologic response of vascular tissues to harmful stimuli such as pathogens, damaged cells, or irritants. So inflammation. That's, I think that's a great term. 
And so this was uh, coined by Franceschi back in, in 2000. And it's inflammation aging is the interplay between inflammation and aging. And he's got some wonderful papers here looking at all the different things that occur for all different disease states, whether, you know, here's like Alzheimer's and stuff, and looking at how as we age, what happens? Our immune system doesn't work as well. The things that should be kicking off in our body to be anti-inflammatory are not working. So you have a problem with, with uh, mounting responses. You think about vaccinations. As you get older, you know, your response, your immunogenicity to vaccine wanes, right? So individuals who are over the age of even at 55, they start seeing that your response to vaccine starts to decrease. So what is that about? And, and so trying to understand the immune system and, and, and how aging affects the immune system, setting off then cascades of inflammation associated with these different diseases. So if you think about all this, HIV does in fact share numerous similarities with aging. There's an increased incidence of all these conditions. So the cardiovascular diseases, malignancy, infections, um, having chronic viral reactivation like getting shingles, um, having muscle and, and bone mineral density loss, neurocognitive decline, frailty. So HIV infection results in T-cell activation and immunosenescence. And what is immunosenescence? It's the deterioration that we see with age, right, of, in the immune system. In both aging and HIV infection, you have elevated proportions of CD28, and a minus CD57 positive memory CD8 cells, and that's characterized by reduced capacity to produce IL-2. You want to have interleukin-2, right? You have fevers. People aren't mounting even fevers. You think about elderly coming in with infections, and they frequently don't have a fever. That's not a good thing. You know, you, your body's immune system isn't, isn't responding appropriately. Having increased IL-6, uh, apoptosis, resistance, and then shortened telomeres. Um, so all this has been seen and correlated with people that are aging. Um, HIV individuals in a median age of 56 were with good immune reconstitution, virologic suppression, they looked at their T cells, and they were very similar to a group of uninfected whose median age was 88. And this is where I think a lot of the aging um, has come into, like, uh, some of the uh, more magazines and stuff that our patients are reading about now, trying to understand, well, what's happening to the immune system. So there are things. It's not that we're aging in the sense of what people think about age as, as I just displayed with, you know, getting gray and losing our sight and hearing and stuff. But our immune system and those that have HIV infection has a lot of similarities to what happens in the aging process. The same thing, though, happens with CMV. And it can happen with other uh, pathogens and other types of conditions. And this was just a few of the studies looking at this, although some of the clinical significance of these findings aren't clear. Certainly, individuals that have CMV infection, again, are like, less likely to respond to vaccines than age-matched CMV seronegative individuals. 
So again, something's happening with CMV infection. There's a lot of interest in CMV and its association, again, with coronary heart disease. And many believe now that it's not so much that it's CMV per se, but it's this trigger again in the immune system affecting endothelial function. So what do we have from biomarkers then? So yeah, we have some of this basic science work saying, okay, it looks like we're having immune senescence and telomeres are shortening and somebody was shaking their head. So the telomere, to remind you, is, is the end of the chromosome, right? And that prevents the deterioration of that. And that's important as you have replicating cells to go on. So you're having more cell death. But looking at biomarkers here, this was from the SMART study, and I'm just going to go through a few things that we saw with the SMART. This was looking at the latest level of these inflammatory biomarkers just prior to having an opportunistic infection, and then again matched to the controls of those who didn't have an opportunistic infection. And what you see here for every category is that the individuals who, in fact, did have opportunistic infections their levels of their biomarkers were increased compared to the controls who did not experience an opportunistic infection. And this was unrelated to CD4 counts or what their HIV viral load status was. The new house, they looked again and compared these inflammatory markers in the SMART study to a group of individuals that were in the multi-ethnic study for atherosclerosis. These are people who do not have coronary heart disease. So they matched these individuals to others that were in this long-term cohort trying to see where, where just in general your markers are. And you can see, again, CRP, IL-6, D-dimer, and cystatin C was all elevated compared to this other cohort of HIV uninfected individuals. And this was true when you adjusted for age, gender, race, um, and, and then fully adjusted for the HIV parameters and for smoking. Because the one thing they did find in, in the cohort here in the HIV infected individuals, there was much more smoking and much more dyslipidemia than in the cohort of the HIV uninfected. But even adjusted for that, these levels were higher. And then finally they looked and they did a nested case control biomarker study. And this is where they, they took the individuals who both had continued on, on therapy versus those who discontinued their therapy and SMART and then looked at the individuals who died compared to those who didn't die. So again, pulling the patients from both arms, so virologic suppression and discontinuation arms, of alive versus those that died. And again, trying to look at those markers and adjusting for all the various things that you can think of, BMI, lipids, smoking, etc. And again, showing that these markers were elevated in the individuals here um, that died. This is um, prothrombin activation factor, and, and that did not play out to be significant. But IL-6, D-dimer, um, and C-reactive protein. So what do these markers mean then? Well, they're prognostic markers, okay? It's not an absolute that if you have this, that, that such and such is going to happen. But, and we don't have, they haven't been validated in this population. But certainly from the SMART study itself are these hints throughout 
that having elevated markers, those individuals were more likely to have adverse outcomes compared to those who didn't have elevated markers. And this was looking specifically at D-dimer, and you can see that, you know, the higher D-dimer here, the, the odds ratio really increased. And, and this up to here, a D-dimer, a normal value here is like up to 0.5. So this is just being on the higher side of a normal reference curve here, is that you're starting to see individuals at more risk of having events. And this is looking now at D-dimers um, between the groups of the, the, the subjects who discontinued their therapy, those that remained on therapy. And you can see when they went off antiretroviral therapy that the D-dimers, in fact, did increase. Now, does that surprise you? I mean, these are people now off their therapy, so they have rebound viral load. And we know that with rebound viral load, you're going to probably see your IL-6 go up. So it's not surprising that you're going to have immune activation and, and potentially um, start off a little bit more of an inflammatory cascade. And here you can look. These are the people starting at baseline who were not on antiretroviral therapy at the time that they started. And this is one of the few studies where you can actually see that on antiretroviral therapy, that the D-dimers went down. Now, there wasn't enough events to actually come out and say what outcomes are, and that's why I say the, these biomarkers are not validated and they're not really ready for prime time, but they're, they're certainly of interest in, in helping us understand uh, what exactly is going on with our patients and, and who may be at more risks of events. So wouldn't it be great if you could do a screening up front so that you know who may be at risk for certain comorbidities. And the intervention then would be prevention of that comorbidity. This was David Fulware and others had, had looked at. This is the first ART-naive study. And again, you're seeing similar findings here. So this was actually levels before they started antiretroviral therapy. And then looking at individuals who developed events versus those individuals who had levels before they started antiretroviral therapy who did not have events. And again, you're seeing this increase, again, predicting that these individuals were at risk for having adverse outcomes. I'm just showing this one. This is uh, by Dan Nixon. This was in Current Opinion, HIV AIDS, which is just a really great overview of talking about all the various uh, markers that are out there and, and what the odds ratios were and, and showing that, um, again, remember I just showed you in the SMART, the SMART study did show that on antiretroviral therapy the D-dimer decreased. Um, but obviously in the end we really don't know what these markers long run mean. So these are the things that we're trying to study now. So give an example of ACTG 5275. I think all four ACTUs or five units, I should say, because UMDNJ, Bronx Lab, Columbia, Cornell, and NYU um, have opened 5275. Is looking at uh, it's just a crossover design of giving some uh, giving individuals on protease inhibitors a torvastatin, and what we're doing is looking to try to define what's the appropriate biomarkers we can use 
um, to really understand this better, we need to identify who that cohort of individuals are that may be at higher risk and then try to understand if anti-inflammatory drugs really will work or not. So why look at statins? These, these are individuals that don't have elevated lipids. So why would you want to give a statin to somebody who has a high normal D-dimer? Well, what we know from other studies is that blocking HMG coase reductase reduces activation of, of the GPP binding proteins that really regulate transcription of inflammatory response genes. Statins inhibit the expression of IL-6, high-sensitivity CRP, D-dimers, soluble CD14, and TNF-alpha. And statins decrease CD8 T-cell activation. And statins have been shown in other studies in the setting of sepsis, pneumonia, influenza, COPD, hepatocellular carcinoma, and cardiovascular disease to reduce these biomarkers. To date, in, in most of the randomized controlled studies we have done, we have not been able to show that giving a statin reduces C-reactive protein, but we don't know what it's doing to other biomarkers. So this is a study to really look at that. Um, as you all know, the, the Jupiter study came out a few years ago that actually even showed there was decreased mortality and venous thrombotic disease in, in individuals who had a C-reactive protein let, uh, greater than 2 with normal LDLs. What was interesting is that that correlation of, of improvement, um, survival and, and morbidity improvement, was just weakly correlated with that decrease in CRP and with the LDL. So the question is, what are statins doing? We don't really know what they're doing. We have other populations that statins seem to really be playing a, uh, a significant role in decreasing morbidity and mortality. What we need to know is, can the same thing be done in our HIV-infected population? And so those studies, you know, some people argue, why bother? We know they work in the general population. But I don't think we have the evidence in the HIV-infected population to say that's true. The AIDS Clinical Trials Group has a lot of studies going on trying to understand what this role of inflammation really is, how it's affecting people's, um, you know, their risks for developing these comorbidities. So we have two studies looking at ways to reduce microbial translocation. We have five studies that are ongoing looking at anti-cytokine and immune modulation therapy. And then there's a whole other things that have been postulated that may work. How about giving low-dose aspirin or colchicine or methotrexate, fish oil, or the polypill people talk about, which is a combination of a statin and maybe low-dose warfarin or something. So I think all these things are really important as we, as we start thinking about the future. That question that I came up in the beginning when our patients ask us this about what is inflammation? What is this that I'm hearing? Am I aging faster? And can I take anti-inflammatory drugs? I don't think it will stop aging us, but it would be great if it could control this inflammation and reduce the comorbidities that we're seeing in our patients. So in summary, antiretroviral therapy has dramatically increased our survival. People ask all the time, is HIV just another chronic disease like diabetes? I think there's a lot of 
similarities, but I also think that HIV has, is dissimilar from diabetes and some of its effects on the immune system. And I think that's really where the money is, that we need to really understand what pathogens like HIV and CMV are doing to the immune system. Um, increased survival has increased our prevalence of non-HIV comorbidities, and we are seeing these comorbidities at a younger age. But this association of inflammation and aging, I think, is very complex, and, and we have much more to learn. And these markers to measure risks and prognosis of the comorbidities, as I said, they've not been validated in this population, and I would be cautious about just using them routinely and trying to make any management decisions from that. Um, and controlling inflammatory disease does improve outcomes. There's no question about it. It works for the connective tissue diseases, but even there it's not complete reversal. So, again, um, we appreciate any referrals to trials, and any of you out there that are doing clinical trials, let us know about it because uh, we've, we've totally changed the face of this disease, but we can do much more. Thank you very much.